don't you open up to Proverbs chapter 6, if you're using a Bible that we provide, it's on page 531. We're actually going to be finishing chapter 6 today. It's a final section, and uh, before we start, uh, just if uh, there are any parents of children in here, uh, the content we're going to be addressing is, you could call it mature content, uh, as Solomon's continuing to emphasize uh, the need for wisdom in the area of sexual purity. So we'll be covering verses 20 through 35, and just wanted to let you know about that so you wouldn't be surprised. So the text is verses 20 through 35 in chapter 6. And we'll start reading, we'll just start reading the, uh, we'll read the passage first. So if you're on verse 20, this is what Solomon says. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes in to his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry, but if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. So Solomon continues to teach his son the way of wisdom, and we are receiving that as well as God had inspired it and written it in his word. And in this passage, Solomon's returning to this subject of sexual temptation. He once again warns his son of the adulteress, and we've seen her before, starting in chapter 2 and then in in chapter 5. This is a woman who neither fears the Lord nor has any regard for the sanctity of marriage, whether it's her marriage or or anyone else's marriage. This woman, as we've said before, is a serious moral threat to every man, which is why Solomon devotes so much of his time warning his son about her. And the first main section of Proverbs is chapters 1 through 9, this this block, uh, this first block in the book, chapters 1 through 9, and that's really the introductory and foundational material of the rest of the book. And Solomon devotes about 27% of it to warning his son about the adulteress. That's how much time 
he spends on this subject. It's important. He wants to drill it into him. And in this passage, he refers to the adulteress as an evil woman. And he describes her as a hunter. In her depraved discontentment, she seeks the the affections of other men. And she uses seduction and manipulation to satisfy her own selfish, wicked desires. And ladies, as I've, I've said before, keep in mind that this woman has a male counterpart, right? You have the adulteress, but you also have the adulterer, the male who seeks sexual sin, indulgence in sexual sin outside of his marriage and is, would be willing to do, say anything to you, to charm you, to seduce you, to get what he wants. So keep that in mind as we move through this passage. There's a male counterpart. And even though we have Solomon speaking directly to his son, it's geared towards the young male, towards the men. Everything we're reading is also very applicable to you women as well. Because we live in a fallen world and we have people who are dead in their sin and who are a slave to their sinful desires and are a threat to you. So Solomon begins his appeal to his son or he begins with an appeal to his son to receive and continually embrace his parents' instruction in godly wisdom. He's going to keep emphasizing this point. Before he gets into the subject, he just says, listen up, receive our instruction that we are giving to you. Verse 20, my son, keep your father's commandments and forsake not your mother's teaching. Both parents have the responsibility to impress the word of God upon their children. Both parents do. Both the father and the mother It's their responsibility to press the Word of God upon their children's hearts, the wisdom of God upon their minds, with the goal that their children might know the Lord and fear the Lord and turn away from evil and trust in the Lord with all their heart and acknowledge Him in all their ways. That's the goal of parental instruction, or it should be. We impress the wisdom of God on our children so that they might know Him and fear Him and walk in His ways. However, the godly instruction of parents will only benefit the children to the extent that their children, what? Receive it. Embrace it. Apply it. Hold on to it. You can't make them do that, can you? You wish you could, right? But it depends on their receptivity to it. But nonetheless, it is your responsibility to bring it to them, to bring it to bear on their hearts, to shepherd their hearts. So we need to be not just hearers of God's word, but doers also, right? We need to teach our children that. And that is why Solomon reminds his son to keep their instruction and not forsake it. Keep your father and your mother's instruction. Do not forsake it. He tells his son to take the commandment and teaching of his father and mother and to, verse 21, bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. In other words, hold them close to you and carry them with you wherever you go internalize them so that you may continually remember them. That's the idea. Bind them on your heart. And here's the result of doing that. Verse 22. The result of that is this. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. So if you receive and internalize and apply the commands and teachings of Scripture, the wisdom of God, they will be a guide to you. They will be a guardian to you. And they will be a counselor to you. 
See, and the interesting thing is that's the parent's role for the children, right? And they impress the word of God upon their children's hearts so that they might know the Lord and fear the Lord so that when they are out of the house, out from under their authority, the word of God, the wisdom of God would continue to shepherd them. But they must receive it and embrace it and internalize it. The wisdom of God will guide you through life in this fallen world so that you may avoid the pitfalls of folly. It will guard you from the deceptive enticements to sin. And it will instruct you in the way of wisdom and righteousness so that you may honor the Lord and find true joy and satisfaction in Him. But you must receive it and embrace it and apply it and hold on to it and carry it with you wherever you go. So Solomon goes on to describe the quality of the biblical instruction he's seeking to give his son. In verse 23, he says, For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. The word of God, the wisdom of God, is the light we so desperately need to see things as they really are and to distinguish between right and wrong, good and evil, pleasing to God and detestable to God, beneficial and harmful, true and false, and so on. It gives us discernment. God's word is the light that shows us the path that leads to life. And his corrective discipline is the rod that essentially keeps us on that path. Because it drives us back onto that path whenever we start to wander off or go astray. We get the commands of God, the wisdom of God, to show us the way of life. And when we stray, the discipline of God will drive us back onto that path. And guess what? The commands of God and that discipline of God can be mediated through the parents. And that's essentially what they're trying to do to raise their children. And what Solomon's trying to do here for his son Now, in verse 24, we see the purpose of the biblical instruction Solomon is seeking to give his son in this particular lecture. Solomon says, verse 24, it is to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Now, Solomon's son, along with every other Israelite, was well aware that God had commanded, you shall not commit adultery, wouldn't you think? Very familiar with that command. He knows that it's wrong. He knows that it is evil. His conscience would even affirm that basic moral fact. Do you know that? Adultery is wrong. That's a no-brainer. That's common sense. That's almost embedded in our conscience. We would affirm that. So it's true of us as well. We would affirm that. However, simply knowing and believing that something is wrong doesn't mean that one is not vulnerable or susceptible to being tempted and persuaded to do that very thing. Head knowledge, right? We can know it. We can affirm it. We could even believe it. doesn't mean we're not vulnerable. That is why godly wisdom is so important. Because it gives us a keener eye to, to spot the sources of temptation and to recognize them in all their shapes and forms so that we might avoid them and give no opportunity to sin. Do you see that? So we know the command. We know the teaching. We know the way of righteousness. It is spelled out for us clearly. Wisdom is going to help us sharpen our perspective, be more discerning, have a keener eye to spot the 
even potential to be tempted in that area. So Solomon's saying to his son, listen to what I'm telling you. I want to equip you with God's wisdom on this matter. It will protect you. It will preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. And as we said before, a, a smooth tongue, we've, we've encountered this before, and what it means, it, what it refers to is flattery, insincere praise. The adulteress is a smooth talker, and she knows how to use seductive and flattering speech to manipulate men in order to get what she wants. She appeals to a man's pride and inflates his ego in order to persuade him to abandon wisdom and to dive headlong with her into sexual sin. Her words are powerful. They're enticing. And they're dangerous. Solomon says that she is an evil woman. And her wickedness is evident by the fact that she cares nothing about God's institution of marriage. That's evil. That's wickedness. She cares nothing about God's institution of marriage, the sacred, lifelong bond of companionship between one man and one woman, which God established, by the way, at the beginning of creation. She destroys that bond of companionship to satisfy her selfish and sinful desires. It means nothing to her. She would destroy that bond. She is evil. And it's important to keep that fact in mind, especially in light of what Solomon says next in verse 25. What does he say? Do not desire her beauty in your heart. Do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. You know, sometimes evil has a beautiful external appearance. Sometimes evil has a pretty face. Form. And Solomon acknowledges that an adulterous woman may be physically attractive, may be stunning. She may go to great lengths to accentuate her, her features to lure men in. So he warns his son to not take the bait. Verse 25 contains the, the central commands of the passage. And in fact, they are the only commands. If you look through the whole passage, they're the only commands after the general appeal in verses 20 and 21 to embrace the parents' commandment and teaching. So it is here that we are given the primary point of application. Verse 25. The first commandment is key. That's where the emphasis is. Where does the battle for sexual purity and marital faithfulness begin? Where does that battle begin? Right here. Watch it do this. The heart, the inner man, the mind. It begins in the hearts. So before Solomon addresses the external danger, he addresses the internal danger. And you know what that is? It's the danger of sinful desires that wage war against your soul. One commentator says, men who have fallen into the sin of adultery have often begun with lustful looking. Just a look. Back in chapter 4, Solomon said in verse 23 in chapter 4, he told his son, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Literally, for from it are the outgoings of life. In other words, this means that our actions are going to flow from what's in our hearts. Our external behavior is directed by our thinking and our desires. And that's why when Solomon warns his son of the adulterous woman, he tells him to not desire her beauty in his heart. 
Men, do you allow your eyes to wander? If you see a beautiful woman, do you fix your gaze on her and let your imagination loose? Has this developed into a habit? Are you justifying it as something that causes no harm? It's harmless. If so, if you're doing any of anything like that, ladies, you as well, you are setting yourself on a, a trajectory away from faithfulness to your wife, to your husband, and towards the sin of adultery, however gradual that might be. It starts in the hearts, and those habits can set you on that path ever so slightly. Remember what Jesus said, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already, what? He's already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus went right to the root of the problem, the desires of the heart. So that's what Christ said. He affirmed this. And and Solomon said back in chapter 5, the wisdom he imparted to his son is that he must avoid the forbidden woman at all costs and rejoice in his wife. That was, if you want to sum up chapter 5, that's essentially what he says. The first half, avoid the forbidden woman at all costs. The second half, and rejoice in your wife. Flee from the adulteress, run into the arms of your wife. Men, you, you must not only physically avoid the forbidden woman. If we had chapter 5, we say, okay, avoid her. Don't even give an opportunity to be tempted. Avoid the circumstances in which she might be able to tempt you. You must not only physically avoid her, but you must also keep your heart from reaching out to her. That's what Solomon's saying here. Let your desire be for your own wife. Don't desire the beauty of another woman, another man's wife. Let your desire be for your own wife. Love her. Esteem her. Delight in her. Be satisfied in her. That was chapter 5. Notice the second command here in chapter 6, verse 25. Do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. The adulterous woman is is ready to hook you and start reeling you in with a a glance, with a look. You know, the eyes can say a lot, right? They can say a lot without the mouth opening at all. With a seductive glance, they can communicate I notice you. I'm interested in you. Come to me. I'm available. So let me ask you a question. Can you be captured by someone's seductive glances if you're not looking at that person in the first place? No, right? Back in chapter 4, after Solomon told his son to guard his heart, here's what he said also. Let your eyes look directly forward, and your gaze be straight before you. Here's the idea. If you're not allowing your eyes to wander and lustfully linger, then those seductive glances of an immoral woman or man will miss their target. Perhaps there's a chance that you may unintentionally make eye contact, right? You know, you're not going to be like... (laughs) Right? I mean, you're not looking... With that intent, right? But sometimes, I mean, it's, I mean, she'd have to be like, ah. There you so it's possible, right? What do we do in that case? 
if we unintentionally, mistakenly catch a, a seductive glance, well, it'll be ineffective if you are keeping your heart in check, won't it? Solomon's given his son the commandment that will preserve him from the evil woman. And from this point forward, he gives him incentive to keep this commandment by warning him of the consequences of adultery. That's essentially what the rest of the passage is. It's to undergird the command in 25. Don't desire her beauty in your hearts. Don't be captivated by her eyelashes with those looks. And notice the emphasis. If, if the heart is being kept in check, those looks are not going to be effective. And it shows you the extent of our obedience for it to be effective. Down to the little things. Our thoughts, what's in our hearts, self-discipline. So Solomon warns him of the consequences, starting in verse 26. So leading out from 25, which says, Do not desire her beauty in your heart. Do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread. But a married woman hunts down a precious life. Solomon, by the way, is in no way implying that going to a prostitute's no big deal. That's not what he's saying. The purpose of this statement is to highlight how high the cost is for committing sexual sin with a married woman as opposed to committing sexual sin with a prostitute. Both are sin. Both are evil. One has a far greater consequence. That's what he's trying to Show his son. Remember that in this particular lecture, Solomon is trying to preserve his son from who? From the adulteress, right? From the married woman who is seeking affections outside of her husband, outside of her home. So if you keep that in mind, whatever he's saying in this passage, then that's his goal. She's the focus. He's warning him about her. So when he mentions the prostitute, and later you'll see he mentions this thing about a thief. He's using those to illustrate points about the adulterous woman so that he might preserve him. One commentator puts it this way with regard to what he says in verse 26. The price of the prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. One commentator says, illicit relationships with either will cost the son. But the latter, with the married woman, the latter will be much worse than the former in terms of consequences. A prostitute will cost money, but a relationship with another man's wife may well cost the son his life. Solomon says that the adulteress, she hunts down a precious life. And the idea is not that she's consciously seeking to destroy a man, but that what she is seeking from him, adulterous indulgence in sexual sin, what she is seeking from him will result in his destruction. Under the Mosaic law, adultery was punishable by death. It was a capital offense. Also, with the adulterous woman, she's, she's not a professional prostitute who basically advertises sexual indulgence in exchange for goods and waits for men to come to her. She's in the shadows, so to speak. She's a married woman who's busy keeping up appearances while keeping her unfaithfulness and her shameful pursuits as hidden as possible. 
Therefore, she secretively and strategically goes after other men. So in effect, she is like a hunter, carefully stalking her prey and stealthily going in for the kill. And Solomon warns his son, don't listen to her flattery. Don't respond to her seductive glances. Don't let your heart desire her beauty. She is a hunter, and if you let your guard down, you might be her next kill. And Solomon goes on to explain that there's no escaping the punishment for adultery. Verses 27 through 29. Verse 27, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes and not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? Let me ask you that. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned or walk on coals and his feet not be scorched? Of course not. Of course not. Common sense. The answer is no. And then he says, verse 29, so is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. Solomon didn't compare an adulterous affair to playing with fire where this, there's this chance that you might get burned. Instead, he compared it to embracing fire. In a sense, you'll reap what you sow. It's completely foolish to even think that there could be some sort of loophole, right? Some, some way you could possibly avoid the consequences, and yet, don't people do that to this very day? Don't we see that even in our society, in our culture? There might be some kind of way I can do this and get away with it. Keep it a secret. I don't know if you're familiar with that old story with the old website that basically profiteered off arranging adulterous relationships and had this whole like guarantee about their security, their privacy, for an extra fee of $20, and we can just do a complete wipe on the internet. That stuff's not possible, by the way. And then the whole membership list was just put out by some hackers, and those names, accounts, were all exposed. But what fools were they, right? Thinking that there was some way that they could keep their identity secret, pay an extra 20 bucks, hey, I can, get, I can delete my, my info, and nobody will know. Complete fools. So the obvious answer is that there will be consequences no matter what. There's no loophole. There's no avoiding them. And Hebrews 13.4 is a good uh, recognition of the fact that no matter what might happen, as far as the earthly circumstances, God is in control and God is seeing everything. Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral, and adulterous. So when, where, and how God's judgment's going to come is up to Him, right? He's the one who determines how that's going to play out. You cannot welcome the advances of another man's wife and expect there to be little to no consequences, in other words. So don't be captivated by her. That's what Solomon's telling his son. (laughs) You will get burned. You will be punished. Don't desire her beauty in your heart. Next, Solomon says in verse 30, People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he's hungry. But if he's caught, he'll pay sevenfold. He'll give all the goods of his house. So when he brings up this subject, remember, who's he, who's he warning his son about? The adulteress, right? So he brings up this issue of a thief, this, this scenario. 
regardless of one's reason for stealing, even if it evokes some level of sympathy from people, this is what he's saying, even if it evokes some level of sympathy, it's always wrong, isn't it? There's never, it's never appropriate or good or right to steal, regardless of the circumstances, and there will be a penalty to pay. We can affirm that. That's true as well for us. So to say that a thief will pay sevenfold, it's likely just a figurative way of saying that he's going to have to make full restitution. It'll be a complete payment of a penalty. According to the Mosaic Law, the standard penalty for stealing goods was that the thief would have to pay back double. That's kind of like just the standard penalty. If he's caught, he'll have to not just return, but pay back double. So he steals one thing. If he's caught, he'll have to pay back the equivalent of that thing and the equivalent of that thing. Pay back double. However, in the case if he stole livestock and then he sold it, or if he stole livestock and that it died in his possession, then if he was caught, he would have to pay back three to four times the amount, depending on the type of animal. You can read that in Exodus 22. So we don't see necessarily specifically seven times the amount, but the bottom line is that there will be a, a reckoning and full restitution will have to be made. There will be a penalty, and that penalty can vary on the circumstances, but he will indeed make full restitution. Making full restitution may even require him to sell all the goods of his house. That's what he's saying. What's more is that in any of these scenarios, if you're reading through the Mosaic Law, in any of these scenarios, if, he, if this thief did not have the means to make full restitution, what if he didn't have the means? You say three to four times, oh, what if he didn't have that? Then the law required that he would be sold for his theft. That's the, the extent for him to make restitution. And here's Solomon's point, is that if this is the judgment for a common thief who steals food, how much more severe do you think the judgment will be for a man who sleeps with another man's wife and defiles that man's marriage? Kind of from the lesser to the greater, right? So that's why he concludes in verse 32, he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. The common thief may have a lot to pay, but he won't be destroyed. The law doesn't require his destruction. It's, it's restitution, even to the point of all the goods of his house, sure. But he won't be destroyed. The adulterer, on the other hand, is the greater fool because he, he gambles his very life for a moment of sinful pleasure. Verse 33, Solomon says he'll get wounds and dishonor and his disgrace will not be wiped away. Why? Verse 34, for, a, for jealousy makes a man furious and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. Solomon's speaking of legal justice here specifically, not vigilante justice not personal revenge. He's talking about the law, restitution, right? What was he talking about with the thief? It's restitution required by the law. Now, as way of comparison, now he's talking about adultery and the restitution here. So this is legal justice, not vigilante justice when he's mentioning the offended husband. Verse 34 here literally says in the Hebrew that the husband will not have compassion in the day of vengeance. And in the 
book of Job, Job said that committing adultery with another man's wife was a heinous crime that would be punished by the judges. So it's a, a communal affair, and it's a legal judgment that's being spoken of. The offended husband would take his case to the judges, and the adulterer's trial and sentencing would be directed and determined by them. And if he was not put to death, he would at least be beaten and humiliated. That's what he's saying. And you might wonder, well, doesn't the law require that he be put to death? Sure. Don't we have laws in our land that require certain penalties and they aren't always enforced? Or they aren't always pro- people aren't prosecuted to the full extent of the law? It's really interesting if you look at laws in the United States against adultery, where it is a crime, and yet the actual prosecution of people who commit adultery is next to none. Some have even considered it a penalty or a, a felony, but the actual prosecution doesn't get carried out. And Solomon's point is, regardless of that, he'll at least get a severe beating and humiliation. And guess what? For the rest of his earthly life, if he escapes somehow by the skin of his teeth, he would be an object of disgrace, shame. That shame would cling to him for life. So Solomon tells his son, don't be captivated by the adulterous woman. Don't desire her beauty in your heart. It's not worth it. And in verses 34 and 35, with regard to what he's saying about the husband, Solomon warns that leading all the way up to this point, the sentence, the trial, the sentencing, the verdict, the punishment, the guilty, adulterous man, he will have no success in trying to appease the husband's wrath by bribing him. Compensation, gifts, these are bribes. Hush money, Let's make it go away. Name your price. Is there a price he can put on that? If you really think about it, what, what price could you pay? Could you make restitution for doing that? One commentator says, the, the offended husband will not relent from his determination to push his lawsuit ahead to get his full pound of flesh from his rival. The reason why is because there's no restitution for adultery. No restitution. There's no dollar amount that can make up for the offense because it is the defiling of a man's wife with whom he had become one flesh. The damage cannot be undone. You can't undo that. You can't fix it. And let's think about our society, right? Like I said, we might have some laws not really prosecuted. And it seems that people commit adultery and there's, there's not really these serious, heavy consequences legal in the, in the courts, so to speak. Legal judgments. And what we should keep in mind is that they may not be as severe as they were in Israel. We may not have the threat of a death penalty. may not have the threat of beatings, public beatings and shaming. But jealousy, what, still still makes a man furious, right? And there's no telling what he'll do to a man he catches sleeping with his wife. So you see the point doesn't really change at all. A man might not have as much weight to bring to a court and a lawsuit to bring down on your head to call for your death, but he might take the law into his own hands, the offended husband. So Solomon warns his son, and the reason he uses these 
general descriptions of judgment is because it doesn't always play out the exact same way every time, does it? So he's trying to help him see that the consequences are severe. No matter what the, how it's going to play out, you will be destroyed. You'll be disgraced for life. You'll be shamed. The legal consequences for adultery in our society today might not be as severe as they were in ancient Israel, but regardless of how little any one government, such as ours, esteems marriage, if it does esteem marriage at all, marriage will always be sacred in the eyes of God, won't it? And God will judge the adulterer. As he said, we read in Hebrews 13.4, there's no escaping his justice. And Solomon had written in Proverbs 5, he had kind of concluded his lecture to his son when he was talking on this subject. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Why should you do that? For a man's ways, here's his reason why you should not. A man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. God knows. God is sovereign. God is the ultimate judge. And there might not be legal consequences, but there will be consequences nonetheless. God is the one who will see to that. And it's interesting that even the word for beatings in chapter 6 can mean refer to the blows that come from a plague, the blows that come from God. God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. And when we can step back and look at this passage, it's not just warning men about sleeping with another man's wife, is it? It's warning anyone about sleeping with someone's spouse. It's warning anyone about committing adultery. And I would say even to those who are younger, who are not married, or those who are single, you're not married, it's still referring to the consequences of sexual sin to some extent. And this is wisdom for you, because this is how temptation works. Those who are seeking it will seek to draw you in to participate with them, and the consequences are severe. But we also must keep in mind that adultery is not the unpardonable sin, is it? In Christ, there can be forgiveness for even those who commit adultery. Such were some of you, is what Paul said in Corinthians. Homosexuals, sexually immoral, adulterers, such were some of you but you're washed and sanctified. God can make someone a new creation in Christ, and that sin can be blotted out. And even for the Christian, yes, that sin is blotted out in Christ, so to speak. But that doesn't mean that there's some presumption on that God's grace will cover us when we, with a high hand, commit the sin of adultery. It's not a pass to do what is evil in God's sight. Because would a true born-again Christian do something like that? You would have to examine your hearts. But nonetheless, adultery is not the unpardonable sin. All of it is covered in the blood of Christ. And this is wisdom for us that we might not do the very things that even if we are eternally saved, the things that can destroy us for the rest of our lives on this earth. Think about the consequences. Remember, disgrace will never be wiped away. There will be shame. There will be some legal consequences, perhaps. There will be some financial consequences. What does adultery do? Destroys a home. Destroys families. So this is our wisdom that we might not choose folly, but that we might walk in the way of righteousness. Please, God, and avoid the consequences. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for giving us greater insights into the many pitfalls that are that we face in this fallen world that we might not succumb to temptation, to be enticed to sin, to do the very things that we know are evil in your sight. Thank you for giving us your truth that it might be a light for us to show us the way that leads to life. We pray, Lord, that your Spirit might impress your word upon our hearts continually and that he might lead us, that we might not stray from your ways. And Father, I pray for the purity of this congregation. You know our hearts, Lord. You know what goes on in our homes. And we pray, Lord, for your protection against such enticements to sin, but also protection by means of your word that we might guard our hearts that we might be faithful to our spouses, that we might be faithful to you in all things, Lord. Help us to live lives that bring glory to you, that honor you. And also, Lord, may we be a people that continually proclaim the gospel that offers salvation to sinners, that offers salvation even to adulterers, Lord. You've given us salvation. You've poured out your grace and mercy on us. We are, we are undeserving, Lord, and we rejoice in that. Help us as a congregation be faithful to proclaim your truth and to apply and live out your truth that our testimony, testimony might be attractive, might draw people to you, to your word, to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, help us be faithful As your church, help us be faithful disciples. Help us to love you and honor you in all things and do everything as unto you, including how we treat our spouses, how we lead our homes, how we do our work in our workplace, and how we fellowship with one another and serve the body of Christ. Amen.